Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for the latest comment and analysis, including this week Tara Isabella Burton on the fantasy of our screen lives and Michael Mandelbaum on Taiwan. Coming up on the show, Roya Hakakian, author of the new book A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. Uh, Roya, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So congratulations on the book. Um, as you say, it's part memoir, part reportage, part self-help book. Uh, what made you want to write it? Um, 2016 made me want to write it. Um, all of a sudden, uh, there was so much anti-immigrant rhetoric, and I finally uh, thought that um, it, it, I, I felt as though there was a call to service um, that had come to me as a naturalized American. And I had to do something to uh, address some of the hostile uh, debates that were going on about immigrants and immigration. Um, but I also, at the same time, wanted to do, to do it in a way that would get people to listen as opposed to um, think about taking a position uh, before engaging with what I had to say, um, which is why I came up with sort of this uh, melange of uh, genres and uh, voices. And, um, you know, it was an effort to try to uh, create a uh, distance myself, my voice, um, the style of my prose from other books about immigrants and immigration in the hopes of finding um, the audience more, or the readers more, more amenable to what I had to say. I'm interested that you say that uh, 2016 was the uh, thing that uh, really inspired you to write this. Do, do you feel that things are worse now than, for example, you arrived here in the 1980s, so you lived through things like the war on terror and so on. Uh, is, is 2016 and what came afterwards noticeably different? Um, I, I talk about it as being worse than 9-11. And, and I was in New York City on 9-11. Um, you know, my eyes were watering um, as a result of, you know, breathing the smoke um, that was rising from the World Trade Center. And there was a big difference. The difference was that we were all united um, um, in pain, in, in grief uh, on 9-11. We may had uh, we may have had different opinions about why it had happened or um, how to prevent it or how to fight it, but um, we all um, were you know one nation um, in in grief. Uh, however, in 2016, I felt that um, there was a great deal of division and uh, more division. I thought was coming. Um, in addition, I also felt a very strange, uh, myself in, in a very strange place in that um, I, I had this uh, strange feeling of terror that, um, you know, had uh, President Trump had been in power um, in 1985 when um, I was applying to be a refugee, uh, I would have never got in. Um, I had none of the requirements that he was uh, trying to pass into law. I 
Um, I was a teenager. I had no money. I didn't speak any English and I had no skills. Um, and based on, you know, who I was at the time, um, I would have never got in um, had he been able to implement whatever it was that he wanted to implement. Um, so I thought it was in part a personal defense as well that I needed to kind of uh, make the argument uh, why I deserve to get in and why we as immigrants, um, no matter how, uh, you know, grief stricken or um, poverty stricken uh, we get in, uh, we eventually uh, hopefully turn into, um, you know, productive members of the American uh, universe. It's one of the interesting things that you say at the beginning of the book is that, of course, not all immigrants uh, are the same, but there are, you say, uh, a common experiences that everybody uh, feels and goes through. Precisely. I think, in fact, that uh, part of the reason why we have become so unusually, uh, at least, um, you know, based on the past 30 years that I've been here, uh, we've become unusually divided is because we keep analyzing uh, and talking about this immigrant community as opposed to that immigrant community. Um, whereas when you look at, um, you know, the, the tw 200 year track record uh, of the United States, it isn't one immigrant community that built this country. It is, in fact, that entire salad of people um, who came in, um, who came in with a lot of hope. And in fact, I think to some degree, uh, those of us who come uh, without anything um, end up feeling, as, as I have now, um, more indebted um, to the United States and you know, the, the notion of being admitted um, when you are at your worst or, um, you know, uh, most, um, you know, threatened by various uh, political pressures that, um, in my case, you know, I had run away from Iran. So um, coming here and finding shelter, finding a home here um, at, at that a moment of crisis in my life and in any immigrant's life uh, cultivates eventually a sense of a great sense of patriotism um, in all of us. And so I think um, I wanted to make the argument that uh, we should stop talking about um, this group of immigrant being better than the other group of immigrants because at the end of the day, um, America was built by all of us, and it is um, it it is part of the American virtue to um, weave us all together as um, as one nation, and that's precisely the strength of this country. It strikes me as I as I listen to you there that the emphasis on you being a refugee, do you think that that experience is different to uh, those who come to the United States as economic migrants for reasons of work and so on? Um, I think, well, of course, uh, because I think the defining experience of my life was um, the political tyranny that I had experienced. Um, and I think the defining experience of those who come here as economic migrants is, um, you know, unemployment, probably. 
um, or the need to um, find jobs and be able to provide uh, their families with um, with food and shelter. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, we both come here because we need America, because we are turning to America in our hour of need. And, and if we become, again, as I have become, patriotic after a decade or two, uh, it is because America took us in when, um, when we had been turned away um, from our own lands. And I think that's, that's a fundamentally important uh, idea. Um, I am not advocating for, you know, opening the borders and accepting, you know, the poor and, and the persecuted of the world. But I am saying that um, we should think about why it is that compared to other Western societies, America has had a better track record of um, assimilating its immigrants. And I think that in part is because we accept them as they are. Um, we don't have uh, this uh, merit-based system, uh, or at least not for everybody. We, we do accept um, you know, refugees who come without anything. And that pays off in the long run in, in a sense uh, of, in a deep sense of loyalty uh, that those communities develop to toward this country. I mean, it's interesting as well that uh, it, it strikes me that coming to the United States from Iran is not just moving to the United States, it's also moving to the West, um, which is a different experience if you're moving from Britain or continental Europe or, or somewhere. Uh, and that comes across very often in moving ways in the book that uh, you talk about being struck by the strangeness of, of things that to many people would seem very simple, logging onto the internet, uh, being able to order things from Amazon and so on, and finding that uh, the speed of the internet is is quick and everything is unfiltered. So so that st strikes me as being very much part of your experience of coming to the United States. Absolutely. Um, it is. And I think um, uh, perhaps the underlying uh, distinction is the idea of um, um, democratic versus undemocratic societies. I mean, those of us who um, come from undemocratic uh, societies um, or societies in which the rule of law has yet to really take root um, have an entirely different experience uh, arriving here as immigrants than probably people who uh, come from Western Europe do. Um, but I also would like to emphasize that I think it is the experience of being uprooted and transplanted that creates certain overriding, overlapping experiences in all of us. And, and those are the uh, moments that I have tried to uh, portray in the book above and beyond everything else. Because I think if we are a nation of immigrants, um, and if we have been relatively successful um, with, you know, certain weaknesses notwithstanding um, at assimilating and incorporating various immigrant communities into the American society. It is because we have, we too have emphasized those shared immigrant experiences over the distinctions. Uh, and I think that's what 
um, we ought to continue to do if we are going to uh, continue to be a nation of nations. One of the really nice things about the book is that uh, there's plenty of humour in it, as you, particularly from the early days, as you're grappling with with living in the United States. That I laughed out loud at the bit where you said you were talking, you were watching the American news, and you say, "The more you listen, the less you understand." Yes, um, you know, people ask me what you know. When did I begin to learn English? And I must say that. Um, in the first few weeks and probably months, all I was trying to do, is, especially when I was listening to the news and television, uh, I was just trying to find the end of sentences um, because I was hearing um, uh, prose or uh, conversation or lectures as just one continuous strand of speech. Um, and that, yeah, that was um, an incredibly difficult thing. And I think once I began to kind of hear uh, when the sentences ended, I think um, I had a little bit of hope. You know, one of the, the really interesting nuances uh, in the book is uh, concerning language, that it's not just simply about learning the language, being able to translate things. Uh, you talk about getting used to not speaking in the passive voice, not using ambiguity, how directness, uh, leaning into the eye, I think is the phrase that you use, uh, and self-assertion, that this is very much an, an American way of speaking uh, that you had to get used to, to using and adopting? Yes, I, I turned in my first paper when I was in college and uh, I got two grades on, on the same paper. Um, I got an A for content and C for style. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I went to my uh, professor who, uh, who was a history professor and I said, what in the world does this mean? And she said, um, uh, I understand that, that you have understood what it what it was that I have taught, uh, and I understand that you have a solid grasp of uh, the materials. But um, your way of putting things is um, is very ambiguous, and you know it's very interesting because um, we are often unaware of how culture, tradition, um, even the politics of societies that we live in. Um, influence our language. And I had come from an undemocratic society in which we had to employ ambiguity if we were going to uh, get by the censors on a daily basis. And now that I was in, an, in a democratic society, I was expected to be clear, precise, and direct, which I had never done. And, and in fact, I didn't even know how to do. Um, so that was uh, the second sort of uh, learning curve that I had to um, undergo or experience um, uh, when I needed to learn how to write in English as opposed to simply speak. And that that use of language uh, you demonstrate is in many ways existential. It, it is about the American character, that the self, you say, is at the centre uh, of the American spirit. Precisely. And, and, and again, I think um, this really goes back to one of the fundamental ideas which I try to um, emphasize and I hope I have conveyed successfully in the book, which is that um, when we think of our democracy here in America, 
um, the overwhelming majority of people think of uh, once every four year elections. But democracy and freedom as we have them uh, are experiences that affect the minutia of our daily lives, including the way we speak and the way we express our freedom in our uh, day-to-day experiences and exchanges, but also uh, speeches and and ways of uh, conversation. And I think um, one of the things that I try to do is to um, convey to American readers uh, who have been born and raised here that um, democracy ought to be cherished for all these other small gifts that many of us um, are unable to actually recognize as gifts of democracy because we assume that they have always been here. Um, but you know, having come from elsewhere, I know that um, they don't always have to be here. That that someone, you know, three hundred years ago or a, a cadre of people, um, it created a system that has, uh, as a result of you know all the. Um, it, you know, fundamental principles that are in place uh, enabled us to enjoy these small gifts of democracy, which I think eventually uh, give us the freedom that we feel in expressing ourselves in language and in our daily exchanges. Yeah, and you mentioned the the founders there. You you strike a very nice balance in the book between being overwhelmed, actually, by the stunning fact of inalienable, self-evident rights of life, liberty, and happiness, and uh, so on. Uh, But on the other hand, you recognize that uh, some of the the worst aspects of prejudice against uh, immigrants goes right back to the founders. You quote, Benjamin Franklin um, uh, as saying how much he hated stupid, ignorant German uh, immigrants, fears of a a swarm and so on. And you have a very nice phrase that you say when you're talking about those self-evident rights, that if they'd applied them in a multiracial way, uh, they'd be worshipped as gods today. Exactly. I mean, um, I I have had to (laughs) think long and hard about this. You know, how do we defend people whose idea of equality applied to um, a very finite um, and distinct group of people and and therefore it undermined the notion of egalitarianism, egalitarianism and equality uh, at its heart but but then you know the the only thing that I keep going back to is that I know of no invention um, that came out perfect when it was first, uh, invented. Uh, I know, you know, whether it was the telephone or the television or, um, you know, penicillin, none of the things that the world has created, uh, democracy included, um, was perfect at inception. And so the only thing I can think of is that, uh, like everything else, um, these these inventions, these creations needed to be put to test um, over years and decades and centuries um, in order to be perfected. And I think that's where uh, the rest of us and the new generation um, has come in um, to actually take those initial good ideas and uh, turn them into excellent ideas, uh, which is to expand 
um, the you know uh, uh, those uh, who ought to be included in the idea of um, you know equality and pursuit of happiness under the laws. And you you talk about the tug in the other direction as well, the pull of the of your old life of the old world, the diaspora uh, living uh, in the United States. You have a a nice phrase saying you can't live with them, you can't live without them. Um, what what is the um, the Iranian American community like in the United States? How would you characterize being part of that group? Um, well, um, it's not clearly a, a homogenous group that in different parts of America, there are different communities and they have uh, different characteristics. But I think by and large, um, they have uh, done uh, economically and professionally quite well in this country. And, um, and, and it's a, a it's a very social and sociable uh, diaspora. Um, it hangs on to, um, you know, its traditions, uh, its celebrations, its uh, identity. And I think that's precisely the pull um, that, you know, you can go to the Westwood village in Los Angeles, which, uh, which is one of the um, you know, small Tehran out of um, uh, Iran um, on this planet. You know, it's where uh, the overwhelming majority of Iranians live outside of Iran itself. And, um, you know, walking on the street, uh, looking at shops and bakeries and uh, restaurants, uh, you can't help but feel that um, you are um, where you belong. Um, and where you need to be, there's a there's a warmth uh, that is just um, lovely to experience. At the same time, I think you know the uh, these communities um, often can become oppressive too because um, the notion of self, the notion of individual rights, um, are ideas that take a while to take hold. And and I think uh, therefore that paradox that I describe, you know, can't live with them and can't live without them. And as you say, as as you uh, as you're here, the longer you're here, deeper questions start to loom as you as you stay longer. Uh, principally, do you become American? And that is something that you decided, yes, that you would become an American citizen. Yes, and it took me it took me about fifteen years to naturalize. It was not a, an easy or an immediate decision. Um, but I think once uh, I realized that becoming an American uh, was, in fact, celebrating and embracing certain fundamental idea, ideas and ideals, uh, then it became far easier for me to, um, to do it, to naturalize, than it had been uh, before when I thought of it as simply switching off who I was, what what community or people I belong to, and, you know, switching loyalties. I, I recognized one fundamental uh, thing here, and it was that um, I was becoming uh, a person who was attaching herself to uh, ideals that uh, I profoundly believed in. Um, and that was just so much better to think of than 
um, thinking of switching ethnicities or nationalities. Let's uh, talk a little bit about contemporary uh, events. Um, at, at one stage in the book, you say that vitriol is the is the other side of, of apple pie. That's uh, one of the uh, the chapter headings. Um, I, I suppose that the shootings in the Atlanta area last week would show, seem to show the grim reality of precisely that. What do, what do you make of those events, particularly in the context of the uh, of the immigrant experience uh, and those who are uh, first or second generation? Um, well, I think um, there are two sides to this curse. Um, the one side is um, what I was just trying to explain in in the previous, um, you know, just just a few minutes ago, which is that um, as long as we think that being uh, American has to do with uh, the color of one's skin or um, you know race or religion. Um, we are bound to fail. That um, as long as we think that um, what defines us um, is is something physiological or biological or ideological, um, we get into trouble. But once we, once and if we recognize that becoming American has to do with something um, far grander. Um, and far more important, which to me is, uh, again, those fundamental ideals upon which this nation has been founded, then I think um, we, uh, uh, we arrive at a place where the issues of race um, or, you know, ethnic uh, differences and distinctions become um, far less, um, you know, issues of um, uh, tension or contention. Um, so I think that's that's where at least um, a, you know a, a considerable uh, number of Americans uh, seem to be stuck that they are defining their Americanness by the wrong uh, values. But the other thing also is that um, I think in a very strange and bizarre way, it has to be reassuring when we think, that or when we recognize that the history of this country, the history of immigration to this country has been a history of rejection and tension. Um, but somehow after one generation or two or three, uh, these tensions give way to acceptance and assimilation. And, and I can only hope that this long standing tradition of, uh, you know, exercising these um, you know, discrimination or hatred towards various immigrant communities. And I should add that we have exercised discrimination and hatred pretty much toward every immigrant community. So we've been indiscriminate about this discrimination uh, specifically. Um, and that has to kind of give us uh, a strange sense of hope that, that we go through these periods and we have come out of them um, but what I what I think we ought to do in order to get out of this one faster uh, or stronger is to think that we no longer can afford, if we ever did, to define our Americanness uh, based on anything other than believing in certain common principles. 
that's the uh, experience of those who are living within the United States now. There's also the crisis of those trying to get into the United States. I mean, particularly at the moment, there's a, a crisis at the at the southern border. Um, what do you? Is it, this is a very contentious uh, political debate. What What do you think that um, we can learn from your experience uh, in terms of thinking about uh, immigration policy and and in particular? What do you think we should be doing in terms of the the southern border right now? Well, um, I think that the lesson to take away for me from my own experience is I was born and raised in Iran and came of age um, under uh, a regime that uh, was at the time and continues to be the most um, vehemently anti-American regime in the world. Um, and overtly so. Um, and, and that's where I went to school. That, that was, you know, that's what I heard um, on a daily basis when I was uh, in high school. Um, so if America uh, has managed to transform me into a patriot and into someone who profoundly believes in, in this uh, in the value of this society and and this uh, American universe, then there has to be um, a, an understanding or a conclusion that we draw that allowing um, people taking um, persecuted refugees and persecuted uh, communities and bringing them in and allowing them to um, strive for a better future is um is a is a source of our strength has always been and will always be however the crisis in the southern border um is less about that than it is about um the the looming and worsening uh crises that um are already haunting us and will continue to haunt us um the you know the climate change and uh, global warming and uh, violence in um, you know in parts of the American continent, uh, whether domestic or gang violence, um, has created a crisis that will make um, people um, want to leave their lives where they are, and we cannot, no matter how many people we accept. Um, you know, through the southern border, we cannot simply make those problems go away um, by admitting people. Um, we have to work um, with those countries, find a way, and I'm sure the way will uh, be a difficult thing to uh, find, and it will be uh, a very, very, um, uh, it would require a great deal of um you know, political, diplomatic, economic uh, strain um, on us. But we have to come up with ways to prevent those people um, from having to leave their own communities to begin with. And that's the only way um, the southern border crisis can be addressed. We have to help create circumstances that will make those societies uh, more peaceful 
and more possible to live in. And of course, you have uh, personal experiences you just related there of growing up in Iran. You have a very good sense of uh, of, of what politics and, and life is like there. Um, the, even in the time that in the, the last 10 years or so, there's been a, a, sh- a very sharp change in the way in which the American government has dealt with Iran. First of all, under uh, President, uh, President Obama, um, who did the nuclear deal um, involving the EU and with Iran, uh, and then President Trump, uh, who uh, turned away from that deal. How do you think that the Biden administration should be dealing with Iran today? I think um, the Biden administration um, should cease to think that uh, American policy or behavior will directly affect the forces of good or the forces of evil in Iran. Um, There is no uh, cause and effect relationship between what we do here and and how they react there. Um, I say this because um, for the past 10, 15 years, we have heard a great deal in Washington that if we do X, Y, and Z, we enable the reformists in Iran to um, to gather strength and come up politically. And if we do um, something else, we will help the hardliners um, and, and strengthen them instead. Um, I think having seen that the reformists have not had a single mentionable achievement in 20 years, and since they they came into being, they became a political force in Iran. We need to um, abandon the thought uh, or this notion of duality of reformists and hardliners in Iran, and we we need to simply do what is right um, and cease to think that what we do will uh, change the the internal politics of the Iranian regime. And I think if we do that, if we simply do what is right and stand by the values that we um, hold dear, um, for instance, strengthen um, the movements of women, um, make sure that if there are any negotiations in Iran, it it will uh, demand that um, women be given equal rights and this notion of um, gender apartheid that Iran exercises uh, be dismantled, Um, that Iran um, free uh, its own uh, prisoners of conscience and uh, change its behavior um, internally towards its own writers, intellectuals, and so on and so forth. If we continue to um, represent the values that we fundamentally believe in. Um, I think we will uh, see a, a better, um, better results from our relationship with Iran. Because at least um, we know that when we try to be so-called diplomatic and strengthen one group as opposed to the other, um, the results don't change anyway. We we don't see uh, fundamentally any difference. Um, uh, in in Tehran's behavior. So I think we should at least do um, what we 
believe in and what we stand for and and be an example in that way. And finally, Roya, as we said right at the beginning, uh, a lot of this book is is personal memoir. You've been in the United States for not far off, 40 years now. Um, I wonder what advice would you give to your younger self now about moving uh, to the United States? And, and would America still be the place that you would choose to come to? Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, I wish someone had told me um, that, that, first of all, moving to any place will, um, will be a painful experience um, regardless, but that, um, but that acclimating and assimilating uh, will have its own gifts. Um, and, and that was something I, I really didn't anticipate um, being as young as I was when I first arrived. Um, I, I still would have come to America, I think, um, when I compare uh, the Iranian community within the United States to other uh, diaspora Iranians elsewhere, even in Western Europe, um, this community has done um, far better uh, in every possible way. Um, than their counterparts uh, in other parts of the world. And I think that um, in great part has to be attributed um, to the way in which America allows uh, its immigrant communities to thrive. Um, and I guess, um, I think, I wish I knew that um, there was a way to um, not think about moving between countries so much as uh, a matter of geographical change as um, a matter of finding um, a place in which one can uh, cultivate um, one's beliefs and, um, you know, find freedoms to exercise those beliefs, um, which is, you know, uh, what I've found here. So the book is A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. It's written by my guest, Roya Hakakian, and published by Knopf. Uh, but for now, Roya, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik with Emma Cordover. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>